What is the difference between directionalism and destinationism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Mike Munger. Mike is an economist and a professor of political science at Duke University. He has taught at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina. His primary research focuses on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. He has been published in numerous journals and is the author of many things, which you can, of course, look up and uh, see his extensive roster. Uh, we have recorded a couple of different episodes together now, and if you check the backlog, I certainly encourage you to check those out as well as enjoying today's chat. Mike, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. And it's always great to have you on, Mike. So as you know, in each episode, we ask a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us in our theme. And today our question is, what is the difference between directionalism and destinationism? And of course, uh, as usual, as you know, I always like to start with some context and then start picking your brain on more specifics as we go along. So let's define our terms then. I mean, you've written a lot about this. You've spoken about it. I think there's a lot to get into, but right at the conceptual level, let's break destinationism and directionalism out. So if you wouldn't mind sort of giving us an overview and defining both those terms as you see it, and then I'll, I'll poke and prod from there. The context for me was political. And so right from the get-go, that may be that some people who identify as small L libertarians are going to say, well, I don't care about that. And that's fair enough. But my experience as a big L libertarian, that is a candidate running under the banner of the Libertarian Party, meant that I often had reactions, the most negative reactions to a lot of my political campaigning, that is my trying to secure votes. And it's important to recognize, Alex, that in a democracy, the securing of votes is a way to get more influence for your side. So my attempt to get votes, I thought, would be, uh, well, okay with my libertarian colleagues. It was not. And the reason is that they saw some of my positions as being compromises compared to what they perceived as the libertarian ideal. And of course, that's quite right. It's just that there's not that many people and not that higher proportion of the electorate that perceives the, the libertarian ideal as being desirable. And so my goal was to try to influence, to persuade, to attract some people who did not already believe in the libertarian ideal in the value of some relatively libertarian policies. And it struck me that often the most harsh critics of my positions were fellow libertarians. A lot of times people who were in the middle, who didn't really have political commitments, they'd say, oh, that's interesting. So I was, for context, I was running for governor of the state of North Carolina in 2008 when this was really crystallized for me. The education plank that I was trying to use, and North Carolina is a state that doesn't have vouchers, it doesn't have very much school choice, I was advocating for increased school choice. 
And there was a lot of interest in increased school choice from a governor candidate among African-American voters, among poor voters, because they felt like the, the public school system wasn't serving them very well. The people who hated this idea were my libertarian colleagues who said, no, no, the state is still involved. The only conceivable libertarian education policy that's acceptable to me is the immediate elimination of all taxes. Now, that seems like a non sequitur, but their idea was if we eliminated all taxes, then people would have enough money to be able to secure good private school funding for their own kids. So there's the difficulty. In politics, you're trying to expand the size of your coalition so that you can influence policy. In philosophy, you're trying to take and occupy a logically tenable position that doesn't admit of compromise. Both of those things are valuable activities. I don't want to say that philosophy is not a valuable activity. Right. I just want to try to persuade people that politics might be valuable also. Right. So is it is it fair to sort of when we talk about this destination uh, versus directionalist perspective, the idea is that the destinationist is often sort of more of the uh, philosophical idealist. And they think that any policy or anything that somebody recommends, let's say, should always end up becoming that destination from an ideal perspective. But the directionalist is looking at a bit more of a, a consequential, more practical means of moving toward an end goal, I guess, if that would be a fair way to summarize it in your view. Well, I have tried recently to summarize the destinationist position uh, as being ideal. And directionalism, I've kind of changed my definition of directionalism to me is the acceptance of any proposal that compared to the status quo increases the level of personal responsibility and liberty. If there's a proposal that increases personal responsibility and liberty compared to the status quo, I think libertarians ought to support it. Because if we could get that, it would be a move at the margin towards the destination we all agree is desirable. And the the difficulty is that, as, as you rightly put it, the destinationist would say, no, no measures. You can't cross a chasm in small steps. We have to go all the way or it's not worth it. Right. And and actually, in one of your articles, I think this is a good time to bring it up. Uh, like, just metaphorically speaking, you'll often say that the, the destinationist uh, often is looking for the, the, you know, the perfect kind of nothing or the perfect outcome, sort of the idea that, hey, if, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm obviously making a caricature here, but if you're a libertarian and you say, hey, what should the policy be in this area? You know, one might say nothing. Uh, but you, you say it's, sometimes it's less about if you want to take a more directionalist approach, uh, less about getting the, the perfect kind of nothing and just the right kind of nothing. I thought that was kind of interesting sentiment. So I was wondering if you could share a little more on that point. Uh, I know there's a backstory too about you had some international travels that sort of crystallized this in your head. But but this idea of the right kind of nothing as sort of a, not necessarily a common ground, but an area, I guess, that you think the destinationists should consider more. I think that's an interesting point. The criticism that libertarians often get from people who are not persuaded about the value of libertarianism is that we think there should be no governance, there should be no rules, 
And I think it's literally true that not one libertarian believes that. Not one. Now, it's always dangerous to say that not one libertarian believes it because we're a very, it's a big tent. We're a very diverse group. But no libertarians think that there should be no governance and no rules. Their question is, what is the source and the legitimacy of the rules that we all agree to? So governance is different from government. So I have tried to describe the libertarian view as being not that government does nothing, but it does the right kind of nothing. And rules of governance um, of the sort that have been described by a number of uh, anarchist, anarcho-capitalist libertarian thinkers, there would be a lot of rules. There's rules of contract. There's a lot of rules that are enforceable as long as we consent to them. So for me, the right kind of nothing, and I'll be brief, uh, 2009, I was living in Germany. Uh, I went to a grocery store, didn't realize that in many German grocery stores, you have to pay a euro to unlock the grocery cart. An old lady was pushing her grocery cart towards back towards the grocery store, and I, I didn't speak German, but I signed to her that I would be willing to take the grocery cart and return it for, because in the U.S., that would be okay. She uh, reacted in a way that surprised me. She tried to dodge and held on to the grocery cart because it turns out she thought she wanted to get her euro back. She wanted to deposit it, chain it back up, and then the euro deposit comes out. I grabbed the grocery cart. She started screaming. The police came. And fortunately, the policeman spoke English, and he asked me what I was doing and then explained to me that about the euro. I was trying to steal a euro from an old lady. I didn't realize I was doing that, but it looked like that. Finally, the cop was laughing or trying not to laugh. If a German policeman laughs, his face would break. <laughs> but you know, he, he's, he was trying not to smile. Um, and he said, she's still watching, isn't she? And I looked and yes, she was still watching. And so... He poked me hard in the chest and said, you have to understand, I don't think she speaks English. Our business here is done today. And the old lady nodded, thinking that the policeman had yelled at me. And he had yelled, but what he said was, you know, it's it's okay. That seemed to me like the perfect kind of nothing. So a, a government official looked at this and you said, you know, this is not worth my action. That is, there's no real violation here. He could have done the wrong kind of nothing, which was sit in the cop car, smoking cigarettes and saying, you know, where are we going to go for lunch? And look, hey, some old lady's getting robbed. Well, let's go get donuts. That would be the wrong kind of nothing. I don't want that kind of nothing. I, I believe in the enforcement of laws. I believe in laws against crime. I believe in the protection of property, all of those things, whether that it's it's a private or public system of government, I believe in those rules. So the right kind of nothing is to look at the situation and see if some substantive violation has taken place according to the rules that we have consented to. My concern is that anarchists are perceived as wanting the wrong kind of nothing, no kinds of rules at all. And so I think directional libertarians can help normalize to to make it seem more familiar. If we could get some elected libertarian candidates who are sensible, who uh, pursue policies of actually following the rules, we could normalize libertarian candidates and we could start to have some success 
politically? Because as it stands, at least in the United States, there really are no elected libertarians to any kind of large scale office. Right. And the party's existed since 1972. We just had our, our 50th anniversary. So it, it's time we try to get a larger coalition and not define ourselves by the purity and smallness of our numbers. Right. And actually connecting directly from that thought into something else I want to ask you about, I think it's a good point to do it. You know, you, there's a quote I pulled because I think it's a nice summary of some of the inside baseball infighting that one often finds in the uh, big uh, libertarian tent, if you will. Um, you, you say, like, so, quote, we end up fussing with folks who agree with us on almost everything. It's kind of a funny way to put it. And I, and I guess that's sort of what I'm pulling from your point here. I mean, to, to tie it back to this right kind of nothing, do, do you think that sometimes it's fair to say that libertarians will often fuss with each other so much on the right kind of nothing internally when externally people aren't even on board with the idea yet? that there should be a right kind of nothing. Maybe that's something to work on before we get to the exact right kind of nothing, if you see what I'm saying. That seems to be a bit well, of the issue. That's my position. And in fact, there are many people who disagree with me, and that's fair enough. I'm trying to persuade them. So um, when I first met my good friend, Walter Block, who is a strong destinationist libertarian, um, when I first met him, he was basically having a minor fit about the fact that I had favorably cited an economist named Ronald Coase. Now, Ronald Coase is a well-known Chicago school economist who believes that private negotiations are usually better than regulation. That's most of the political program I want to accomplish. But my good friend Walter Block, for perfectly sound reasons, says no. Kosa's view would still involve government, and so that cannot be allowed. Well, what that means is that we're fussing with an ally instead of incorporating the sort of Kosian view to try to persuade people who think regulation should do everything. So the way that I've put this, and I've been un unable to persuade Walter, so maybe he's right and I'm wrong, but my claim is we are much harder on heretics than we are infidels. And to be fair, there's many movements, religious and political, that are like that, where dogma and uh, doctrine are actually more important than getting new adherents to the view. So I think we should spend less time fighting with heretics, because Walter Block and Ronald Coase agree on almost everything. Why would we spend our time fussing on the small disagreements rather than say, let's ally against the real enemy, which is statism. Right. I guess because one could say, like, and I'm sure you would say, but you correct me if, if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you, Mike, would probably be happy if you found someone external of a libertarian circle that would fully agree with either Walter Block or Ronald Coase as compared to, for example, fully agree with, I don't know, like, pick any political figure in the mainstream Republican or Democrat tent, for example, either one of those alternatives, if you were to convince someone of it, ultimately would probably be favorable, at least. I, having, as I said, having run for office, I, I ran for governor in 2008, and I've run for North Carolina General Assembly several times since then. I think some of our folks ought to get out more. Because everybody <laughs> they talk to pretty much already agrees with them, but we we disagree with small points, and so we fuss with each other on Twitter. And we never actually read anything that we disagree with. So 
I've talked a lot to people that we disagree with. And what you said is, is frighteningly correct. If I find someone who agrees with me just that it would be better if we had more school choice, that's an enormous victory. Right. It doesn't happen very often. Finding someone who says we ought to abolish the public school system, that never happens. Right. No, exactly. I know. And, and, and I've sort of uh, encountered a bit of this in my own experience, too. I meant like I over the last two years, I've been submitting essays and having them published from different outlets and stuff. And I, you know, I don't want to be too mean about it, but sort of like the some folks need to get out more comment. Like, you know, it, it's obviously a little flippant, but I think it's totally true. I mean, I remember I, I published an article with a certain outlet that wasn't necessarily the specific libertarian mecca, if you will. And uh, I was mostly making a point about free trade and the whole thing. And it was like about 2000 words. And, you know, I, I a couple of folks that I kind of frequently talked to in some libertarian circles ended up picking on a point in a paragraph somewhere where I, I cited like Paul Krugman of all people. It was actually a point where he said he was for free trade. That was the point. But some folks got a little bit in a tizzy about the fact I would, I guess, even mention this person's name. And I'm like, well, you know, the rest of the 1800 words of the article, except for that paragraph are there. So I mean, I'm just saying I've personally well, but, but, experienced but, what you're saying is I guess what I'm trying but, to get but, at. But, but, but wait, I'm, I'm actually shocked, Alex, because Whatever else Paul Krugman is, he's a very strong free trader. Right. Why would you reject an ally because you disagree with some of his other opinions? Mm -hmm. It makes it much more persuasive. If in your essay you can say, look, even Krugman agrees with me here. Yes. That's rhetorically persuasive. To have someone say, no, you can't cite him because he's the devil – that's terrible. That That's a complete misunderstanding. And I'm not joking when I say we should get out more. I literally mean you people need to get away from Twitter and get out more. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I'd love to quote you on that, too, exactly. Because, I mean, if I thought the article was pretty OK. So, I mean, if people are sort of uh, raising an eyebrow at the outlet it was published in, which isn't even that far off from that classical liberalism. And the, one of the people cited in it, I agree, it's, it's sort of a, a missing the whole point thing. And actually, the, the, oh, go ahead. That's the thing, too. Suppose that it is an outlet that someone besides libertarian read, libertarians read. That's good. So two good things. You published it in a place that where someone who was not already persuaded of libertarian dogma might read it and think, huh, that's interesting. And you used a rhetorical device of saying even Paul Krugman thinks this. So again, persuasive. We need to do more of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And actually, that's actually funny enough. I didn't realize I could connect it like this, but I can. There's a, there's an interesting story you recount in one of your articles, if you wouldn't mind sort of summarizing it here. I mean, I learned that at one point, uh, some people actually thought that Milton Friedman and George Stigler were communists and dirty reds, basically. I didn't realize it got this extreme at one point. And uh, I think this actually sort of proves the point you were just making there, if you wouldn't mind recounting that story. Because I, I thought this was, this was fascinating uh, and, and also quite sad, but, but fascinating nonetheless, if you could summarize this this story? Well, um, one version of the story that many people have heard is that in the first meeting of the Montpellerin Society, uh, Ludwig von Mises got up and walked out and said this was just a bunch of socialists. So this had happened quite, the, the, for, for the, the Montpellerin Society to be viewed as being a bunch of socialists is, but that story is often told. The story that I told was about Leonard Reed of the Foundation for Economic Education had commissioned a piece on rent control. 
and rent control. And Paul Krugman is good on this, too. Paul Krugman has a series of articles later saying rent control is terrible. It's one of the things economists all agree on. So Leonard Reed was looking for something that was actually a policy question that was coming up where actual legislators, actual city council people would look at it and it might influence the policy debate. And he commissioned two people who uh, it might surprise you to learn were communists, George Stigler and Milton Friedman, uh, both uh, stalwarts of the Chicago school later. Oh, this was 1946. So Stigler was at Brown and Friedman was already at Chicago, but they were fully formed classical liberals, very much pro-free market. So they wrote an essay uh, about uh, rent control in which they granted the premise of the people who support rent control. Let's suppose that we do care about equality. We care about the ability of the poor to find housing. If you care a lot about the ability of the poor to find housing, then rent control is a terrible way of achieving that goal. So it's a consequentialist argument. If you care about the poor, you should oppose rent control. So it, no, notice that it's judo. That's intellectual judo. You grant the premise. Right. And granting the premise that we should care about the poor outraged so many libertarians and people on the right that there was a firestorm of protest. No, we don't get to care about the poor because the right to contract is sacrosanct. The only objection that is allowed to rent control is that it is an interference with the fundamental right for individuals to come up with mutually beneficial voluntary contracts. No restriction on voluntary contracts is allowable, and that's a moral point. You have to make the moral argument. Now, I happen to agree with that. I happen to think that's right. I have bad news. No one else does. There's like seven people in the world who think that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unless you already think that, you the, the, the sort of pious recitation of this moral dogma. No, no, the government is not allowed to interfere with the right to contract. If you don't already believe that, you will not find that catechism, that recitation of dogma to be persuasive. However, if prominent, competent economists say, if you care about the poor, you should oppose rent control. I'm sort of taken aback by that. I think, well, wow, I do care about the poor, and yet I support rent control. I should think more about this. And so the, the, it is a very effective debate tactic to grant the premise of the opponent, but then show that their pre preferred policy action doesn't lead to the outcome that they believe, and then to use empirical evidence to back that up. The point is, destinationists don't care about empirics. This is a moral question. And again, I don't disagree. The question is, how can we increase the size of the people who, the, the number of people who agree with us, not satisfy ourselves that we're winning moral arguments and then go off into our little treehouse of seven people and congratulate each other on our purity? Right. And on that point, you know, one thing was interesting to me about learning this story is two things. I mean, like it'd be one thing if someone came back with their counter essay and said, hey, you know, uh, Leonard Reed, don't publish this essay. I think it misses a few crucial points. And it's a little disappointing that the moral arguments weren't taken up as primary. That's one discussion. But two things that were very surprising to me were that on the one hand, 
um, you know, this wasn't even that kind of disagreement. It was going so far as more than one person thinking that Milton Friedman was basically a communist writing drivel and spouting propaganda. That was kind of funny. And two, specifically, Ayn Rand basically made a point of not only saying, you know, this argument is out of priority order, but she basically kind of... um, in her own verbal way, of course, and more eloquently than this, but basically just sort of spit on the idea that they would even write the word humanitarian in their essay. So that was probably the, the more disappointing part is less about people disagreeing about the approach with the essay and just going into full on tantrum mode, frankly. And I don't care how nice the words are that are written because this is some eloquent tantrums from some people. But nevertheless, that's what they are. That was the interesting part to me. It, it, it is frustrating because the destinationists, in a sense, are right. The ideal form of the argument is the moral one. And one might criticize me, and I made this point in the essay. I mean, thinking about it, the, the question that the title of the essay was, this is why we can't have nice things. And I started writing it thinking, you know, it's those darn destinationists. They're keeping us from winning. Well, are, are we winning? No, we're losing. And in fact, rent control is still a thing. Right. 60 years later, 70 years later, almost 70 years after this essay and this little contretemps, uh, we're still losing and rent control is still a thing. Maybe Walter Block and Ayn Rand and the others are right and I'm wrong. Maybe we should have been arguing the moral point all along because that's the only way to have a general approach to these problems rather than arguing one off well in this policy here's the empirical evidence on this policy you need to think about this because then we don't have enough bandwidth to fight this enormous statist force that's advancing on all fronts so maybe i as the directionalist am the one who should get out more you know, I'm satisfied that we need to make these little political arguments rather than the big moral argument. Maybe that's why we're losing. So I, I did have a sort of creed de cour, a dark night of the soul at the end of that essay. Since we're losing, and in fact, we have had people like Milton Friedman and George Stigler that have made the directionalist argument, maybe we should have focused on destinationism all along. Right. And, and I think like, I mean, maybe and I have one question here before we go to a break and then we'll get to some other things after the break. But but, you know, is it fair to say that maybe there, there's also just a, a simply I hate to, it to be a platitude, but maybe it's true. Isn't it maybe there's a, a time and a place for both? As as you've been saying multiple times, both approaches are valid in different ways and they have right elements about them. But maybe it's just that there's well, and I'm speaking here a bit of inside baseball, too, within the libertarian tent. Maybe the message is there's a time and a place for both of these. And maybe, you know, there's some crucial times where you can screw up the time and a place for each one and that's hence there is is the is the dropping of the ball i guess i i would agree with that but i do think that the destinationists might come at me and say okay fair enough but we're losing and so we need to do more of what i want and less of what you want and they might have a point Right. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take a break before we get into more stuff. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. 
As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Yakov Mikhailovich, and Alessandro Fiorello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. Mike, I think the first half was great. We sort of got, uh, you know, a, a division going uh, conceptually between this uh, directionalism and destinationism. We got into uh, some more specific examples and discussions there. I want to pick back right back up where we left off um, because, you know, you, you said a few times throughout the first half that, um, you know, it's not that the uh, destinationist point of view doesn't make any sense. You said, in fact, that in many cases, and perhaps all the time, many of them are often right about exactly what they're saying. It's really just a, a question of, tactically speaking, how do we nudge things forward? So, hence, that's really the directionalist, I guess, raison d'etre, is moving things a certain direction rather than worrying about the ideal, as you put it. Um, but is it is it is it fair to sort of summarize all that to say that, you know, directionalists are really also destinationists. Maybe not all destinationists are directionalists, but maybe it works the other way, where directionalists are also destinationists, but they're really more just willing to engage in certain tactics. And I don't want to make that sound like I'm saying that, you know, directionalists are more reasonable people. I I more mean that as like sort of a neutral statement, that it just so happens that directionalists are more interested in tactics, but they're destinationists as well at the end of the day. In order... To define a direction, you almost have to have a destination because it's toward something. Right. So I have some notion of a direction before I can even uh, – I have to have a notion of destination before I can define the direction. Um, I would say that you're right. All, all directionalists are destinationists. The difficulty is that many destinationists won't tolerate any sort of directionalism. They have a uh, a sort of a classification hat, like in Harry Potter. They put on the hat and they say (laughs) that either is or is not an acceptable policy. And if it's not acceptable, then I'm opposed to it, even if it's way better than the status quo. And so it's difficult to build a political movement around that. Another way, it had not struck me until uh, just a couple of years ago, there's a parallel with a different kind of formulation that Frank Knight and James Buchanan used. Frank Knight was uh, president of the American Economic Association, a professor at Chicago. James Buchanan was a Nobel Prize winner for the starting the public choice movement. They had a formulation they called the relatively absolute absolutes. And the relatively absolute absolutes, or RAA, would say that there are some things that we accept as conventions. They've been handed down to to us from the past, and a society that operates according to these principles seems to do pretty well. But all of them are also constantly subject to question because we may be able to do better. So this is sort of a, it derives from David Hume in a way that we don't actually know enough. And it's a Hayekian view also. We don't actually know enough to know which rules, which institutions are the best, although we have a presumption in favor of liberty. So the relatively absolute absolute is closely connected to directionalism versus destinationism. We will, for the most part, accept the existing rules, partly because the state has big-ass guns. Let's admit, the state has attack helicopters. So mostly we have to accept the, rule, the rules of the current state. 
However, we can question and try to improve, at least at the margin, many of the policies, rules, regulations, because we think we have an idea of a better way to do it. So the relatively absolute absolutes is to admit that all of us every day sometimes are thinking in terms of the destination and sometimes are thinking in terms of the direction. Overall, it is a kind of middle position saying that there are not absolute moral rules, but we do have moral conceptions. And in in my case, that's a strong presumption in favor of liberty and against collectivist imposition of of rules. It's rebuttable presumption. Sometimes I have to accept that there are rules that we abide by. We can't do everything at once. So the, I think that the, this intellectual program, this idea of the relatively absolute absolutes, connects pretty well to my directionalist versus destinationist conception. The advantage of the relatively absolute absolutes is that it takes for granted that all of us are both at any point in time. There's many rules we have to accept. We can't change everything at once. On the other hand, we get to question everything. There is nothing that is sacrosanct. And I think that's something that many of us are encountering now where there are arguments on the left that you're just not allowed to question. Right. That there are some things we're just going to take as true. I know this is true in Canada. I know it's true in the United States. Um, the That idea that there's some questions that you just don't get to question is a kind of destinationism of the left. Right. And that's something that I think they are overplaying their hand. The left is going to have trouble with this same excluding anyone who is a liberal who basically agrees with them, but doesn't accept the sort of extreme version of the leftist progressive destination. Right. And actually, you know, not to get too into like Canadian politics per se, I just was listening to some analysis the other day about the current uh, capital L liberal uh, party of of Canada right now. And for those who don't aren't familiar with them, just think of it sort of more like uh, the more progressive wings of the uh, Democrat Party in the United States at this time. Like one of the actual comments that one of these analysts was making that the direction kind of for the reasons you just stated, Mike, that the current leadership in the uh, Canadian Liberal Party are taking is actually sort of literally narrowing their own tent because they're actually shutting out basically the opportunity to be a more of a big tent liberal party that sort of has everyone from the middle of the road sort of maybe even slight classical liberal sentiment all the way over to more progressive side and um and one point this analyst sort of made is that if if the opposition parties are off also narrowing their own tents and just you know basically being a bunch of destinationalists although he didn't use this word it's like what are we all doing kind of thing so so all that to say to your point mike i mean if there is this sort of um you know um you know, sort of a threat from the capital L left right now, especially on the American scene and the mainstream, you know, progressives and Democrats and so on, where, you know, they're getting into their own kind of destinationism. Uh, It's not going to be helping even from a practical perspective if folks on the, uh, you know, libertarian big tent are shrinking their own tent as well, right? It's it's our big opportunity. This is our chance. Right. There's a bunch of liberals who could become classical liberals, if we just make directionalist arguments to them, because they are not happy with the sort of authoritarianism that progressives are now showing. So even though it looks like we're losing, I think this is our big chance. There's a lot of people out there that are looking for some kind of new direction. 
and we can provide it. Right. And and as we were saying before, right, about this idea that, you know, if, if people if we want to get together and play a bunch of inside baseball and the ultimate absolute answer, that's one thing. Fine. But like, you know, even getting, you know, uh, people to look at just a couple of the old free to choose archives at this point would be would be like a, a small win. I mean, that's the kind of things that maybe people should be focusing on as opposed to getting people to ultimately accept. I don't know. I'm just being funny, you know, like Murray Rothbard's man economy and state or whatever, if that's someone's Bible out there. I mean, like th- this is actually I agree with you totally. I think this is part of the issue here is that there and I've met a lot of these people and had conversations with them there are a lot of people that are disgusted with both the uh, mainstream quote-unquote right and the sort of authoritarianism and statism that they're heading toward for various reasons and people that are disgusted with the quote-unquote mainstream essentially authoritarian status kind of left that they're kind of seeing now and there are a bunch of people right now that are very interested in uh, different alternatives and different discussions uh, in this perspective and it'd be a big shame if, if these folks felt either excluded or not welcome to or frankly just disgusted by what they see <laughs> happening in libertarian circles that's a huge missed opportunity yes um and i'm gonna flip it around though because i mean obviously we, we you said it outright uh, in your writing people could get the idea uh, you're very prone to the directionalist ap- approach to yourself um but to, to be fair to destinationists now for a second because i always like to flip it every now and then at what point would you say if you're there in your shoes that you'd understand where you could say yes the directionalist approach has gone too far i guess you know sometimes their argument would be that you know they might even say you know fine directionism is, is one thing but you ultimately end up with the diet 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 coke version of whatever we're talking about here which might not even you know move things forward or in fact actually opens the door to making things worse like this is often the destinationist argument so i guess all i have to say can you see a point where uh just like destinationism directionalism can also go quote unquote too far to the extent that all of our political resources and uh, efforts are devoted to empirical claims about how particular policies don't work, how regulatory policies don't work, how the Food and Drug Administration delays uh, the availability of drugs even in a pandemic, when you're when you're conducting the debate on empirical grounds, it is possible to have very smart people who disagree with you come up with what appear to be very compelling empirical arguments that would show that you're mistaken. And the public is not very well able to make judgments between these two. So if I were a destinationist in the United States, I would point to the enormous progress that the American Republican Party made between 1979 and about 1986, having a strongly destinationist spokesman named Ronald Reagan, who made arguments from a moral perspective. Now, you can say they were oversimplified, but a simple persuasive was able to formulate these kinds of, and Harry Brown for the Libertarian Party and Ron Paul for a Libertarian Party, mostly made moral arguments. And that was a time when the Libertarian Party was growing quite a bit. We have, we, and I'm talking about the American Big L Libertarian Party, Right. we have moved more in the direction of directionalism, I think a lot of our colleagues would say, until the recent uh takeover by the Mises Coalition of the Libertarian Party. This is really inside baseball, but since you asked about politics, um, I I would 
think that many people who have a small L libertarian identification would say, we need to be able to make the moral arguments and we need someone who is a passionate, articulate spokesman. And of the sort that Ronald Reagan was, because that was a time when many of these arguments won the day because they were simple and they were morally attractive. So the, the, the hard part is to be able to make this argument in a way that is positive, optimistic. If you flock to our banner, you will live a better life and other people will live a better life also. Because many of us don't choose political policies solely for the fact that it benefits us. We would like at least to imagine that it benefits the larger group. So what is it about our policies that are going to make the entire nation or the entire world better off? So the, I, I think that's the form of the, of the destinationist argument that I find most persuasive. We have examples from the past when an articulate, optimistic spokesperson was able to make the movement grow much more rapidly than we have seen in the hands of the empirically focused sort of dry, boring directionalists. Right. I think that's an excellent point. And I have one last question for you, Mike. Well, I guess it's, it's more of like something I, I was kind of thinking about. It's a point of reflection I wanted to throw at you and see if you had any comment on it. And then we'll move to our, our formal wrap-up. But the last sort of pillar of conversation here is like – do you get the feeling, and of course, you know, with your experience too, both on the inside and the outside baseball when it comes to a lot of the libertarian movement stuff, you know, it, it seems to me that whether it is this, uh, you know, directionalism versus a destinationism discussion, or it's the natural rights versus the consequentialist libertarians, or it's the, you know, the Mises caucus versus like, the, I want hate, to, I hesitate to say everyone else, but for the sake, I'll leave it there. Um, you know, I, I find that sometimes. It, one thing that's a little bit sad to me and concerning, and maybe this is back to your get out more comment, is that at some point it seems that a lot of um, the focus becomes on 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 winning, whether it's winning inside the big tent and and making the best sort of awesome seminar argument with your fellow libertarians, or it's winning externally and just having the libs be wrong or whatever. It seems a lot of this ultimately loses track of the point that you just brought up, that at the end of the day, it's not just about improving our lives or winning arguments, it's about other people too. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems to me that if we get too much into the weeds, we lose sight of the fact that small changes even slightly compromised ones can have massive positive effects on others in the short run like you know for instance if we do get rid of, of occupational licensing in some states and that unleashes a, a flurry of entrepreneurship and you know some lower income or poor person can finally you know open up whatever a hair braiding sort of salon out of their house or or whatever you can think of this isn't just you know a discussion about direction and destination it is literally about affecting people's lives in the short the short short run because we're not all around forever so i guess my point of reflection really is I find this also also sometimes unfortunately serves as a distraction, this whole winning part from the fact that there are people <laughs> that lives will be affected by these policies, even small compromise choice ones. And I think that's kind of what makes me sad when I think about it is that sometimes that's lost sight of. But I'm not sure if you have a, a different perspective on that last point there. I would say that the difficulty that we face is there's two kinds of winning, and one of them is a lot easier. The kind of winning that too many of us care about is winning an argument. And what we mean is we win an argument in our own minds. That is, we pwn the libs. So we, you know, retweet something and have some catty remark or some citation to Mises or Rothbard and say, boy, I killed them. And three of my friends all comment and say, boy, that was awesome. Uh, 
that the Munger destroyed that that lefty. Well, right. winning that kind of argument is terrible. You have accomplished nothing except to confirm to other people that you have this narrow view. Now, it's really fun. It's really attractive. And the thing about social media is that it appears, you know, maybe it's not three, maybe it's 30. Maybe a bunch of my friends all comment on it. And a bunch of people on the left have these outraged responses, which I find hilarious because I've successfully trolled them. The other kind of winning is to win converts. That is someone who didn't already believe my view says, huh, I'm going to think some more about that. And that's one of the things that Leonard Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education long believed was important was to increase the size of what he called the liberty movement. So he would almost never argue with people. He would certainly never try to win an argument. He would ask some questions about, well, have you thought about this? Or how did you you came to believe this view that the government should carry out these functions that might be better left to the individuals themselves, given their judgments of their own welfare? And I, I have there's one person I haven't mentioned except in a negative way, and I want to put a positive spin. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's description of how a world in which individuals are allowed to seek their own goals without interference is a that's something that's very attractive to people who don't already believe it, because it is again an articulate, optimistic, moral view of how the world can be. So If we would try to win converts rather than to win arguments, I think we would we would that would just that change in orientation would go a long way towards growing the movement. Because there's a lot of people out there that if you insult them, obviously you've lost them, even if you win the argument as far as your boys are concerned. Right. Yeah. But if instead you ask some questions, you guys can actually have a conversation. You might learn something. At least you'll learn why smart people disagree with you. And they might learn something about that's going to change the way they think about this. And you have now modeled the fact that we're not crazies. We're actually serious. We have many of the same goals that you have. And you should think about the policy solutions that we would like to propose. Yeah. As you said, libertarianism can't just be for the boys, right? Yeah, and um, and uh, and if and if I may, I'd like to actually submit a. Th- you talked about two types of winning. I'd like to submit actually a, a third to your list for consideration. Whether you know, like you said, there's the one type of winning which is like, oh yeah, you're owning the libs. There's a second type of winning which is definitely more useful, especially in my mind too, which is the convert sort of situation where someone specifically says like, hey, maybe I'll consider that. But I think the third type of winning is also just simply displaying or having other people be able to see an exchange or or a positive or civil. Conversation conversation regardless of how they come away from that it's that john stewart million point i think where you're sort of creating a positive externality effectively that other people can just see an interaction between two people and maybe learn something from that too so the argument itself or whatever's happening in the uh in the the baseball diamond if you will sometimes isn't as important to me at least as the audience and what they're perceiving as well if i'm making any sense i think that's another type of winning personally that's one that's actually pretty easy, because even if you lose the argument and fail to win a convert, even if you lose both of my times of winning, you can always win the civil substantive argument battle. Right. Absolutely. 
And with that, Mike, I'd like to move us to our formal wrap-up. I mean, we've talked about a lot, as you know, in each uh, conversation we have and in all of our episodes here on The Curious Task. I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the final word to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the main theme. So all that to say, throwing at you the official last question, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what the difference between directionalism and destinationism is in other words if you wanted someone to leave listening to you here with one two or just a few takeaways what would those ultimately be that you want them to take away i think the def- the, the difference between destinationism and directionalism once people start to think in those terms it becomes easier to model each of them to yourself. So the if someone says, you know, I actually ought to take more of a destinationist position, I ought to argue the moral position more, uh, recognizing that there's two different ways of approaching this can be a help. Or someone who rejects all proposals that don't immediately create their mental libertopia it might help to be able to think, okay, I would like to make some progress today. And it would be nice if we had a larger movement. So, but one of the things that I think I accept that many of our colleagues do not is that I think we can win at politics because I think our ideas are better. I think our ideas are are more persuasive and given a chance to talk to someone for 10 minutes, I can almost always convince them that we have many things in common. And so the the idea that many of us have, many of the, the libertarians have, is that politics is a waste of time. We, sh- we, we shouldn't even try. Uh, it has been frustrating. And I admit we're not winning. But I, I think that these things move in cycles. And if we get a new Ayn Rand, a new Ronald Reagan, a new Ron Paul, I hope we're in a position to try to build a political coalition where we can take advantage of the fact that our ideas are actually better. So I want to say I have a personal optimism about our capacity for effecting voluntary change and working towards a better society. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Mike Munger, thank you very much again for joining me on The Curious Task today. It was a pleasure. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.